Well, the subject for this morning is church and state, religion and politics. Now, that's an important subject. That's a subject that carries a good amount of energy and intensity with it as well. Politics in general has a really acute feel to it, doesn't it? And you start adding religion into that mix, and boy, it's almost an untouchable subject, you would think. And with so much heat and energy, I think it's just maybe an exaggeration, but how about this? It's our Christian duty to think clearly and think carefully about these matters. And I hope that you will see that this subject, that being church and state, religion and politics, is the perfect subject for the occasion of this day. And the occasion of this day is the ascension. And I think that we'll see that it is a perfect overlap, the perfect opportunity for us to think about a very delicate, a very important, and potentially a very volatile subject. So we're just going to first look at what the ascension is. We're going to look at what happened at the ascension. Let's start right there with Acts chapter 1. It's printed in your service leaflet. You can turn there if you like. So let me set the stage. It's actually the Feast of the Ascension, and that's what today is. It's a, a, a significant celebration within the life of the church. Some of those celebrations, you know, Easter, Christmas, all very important, both very important. But there are other celebrations within the calendar of the Christian church that, while they don't get as much publicity, they are equally important. And one of those days is the Ascension. What happened? Well, here's what happened. Forty days after Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven. Now, during those 40 days, he appeared intermittently to his disciples. Think of how the Gospels, each of the Gospels end with Jesus appearing on a road to Emmaus or in other circumstances. Jesus appeared intermittently during those 40 days, presumably teaching uh, his disciples about the very thing that he concludes with as he ascends, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. That, by the way, is next week, Pentecost. Teaching them about the Holy Spirit, teaching them about the kingdom of God, those very things that he summarized as he ascended. And after the end of those 40 days, he ascended into heaven. Now, the ascension is important for two reasons. Number one, it marks the completion of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, he still has a heavenly ministry. We believe he's interceding for us at his Father's right hand. But his earthly ministry has come to a conclusion. Right? Those, that period of intermittent appearances has come to an end. He appeared uh, privately and quietly, and now he ascended publicly and he will not return, save for that time when he returns, not privately, not quietly, but publicly, with the shout of angels and with the blast of trumpets, as we read in 1 Thessalonians, to be the judge and the savior of all nations, of all people. So do you see, this marks the end of his earthly ministry. Why is that important? I think you'll start to see how that has implications for how we think about uh, politics and our nation, but just consider uh, the, uh, William Blake, an English poet, wrote this poem. He said, uh, Did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountain green? Was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant 
pastures seen? Answered, no, he wasn't. It's a fine sentiment, and it's good poetry. And you can hear the uh, reasonable hope for a fond hope of William Blake expressed in the sense of, did Jesus walk upon England's rolling hills? Does England have... It's a fine sentiment. But you can see how that would potentially be problematic. In other words, God may love the whole world, but does he have any special favorites, namely England? The answer of the ascension is no. He ascended and he is gone. He will return, but he will return for all nations. He doesn't, you know, Jesus loves everybody, but I'm his favorite. No. He's got the whole world in his hands, but we're his special. No. That's what the ascension stands for. He didn't appear to England. Those feet didn't walk on that land. He didn't appear to America. There's no nation that can claim, uh, yes, we can all claim that nations are part of God's providential plan, but to say one one is his special plan. We should think of a nation as we think of a church. You should love your church. You should love your nation. You should want the best for it. But not to the exclusion of thinking that other churches don't have their unique role and their unique gifts to offer. So the first point is the ascension marks the completion of Jesus' earthly ministry. Second, the ascension marks Jesus' uh, exaltation to his rightful place. Now think of that word ascension. The word ascension we don't use to say that Jesus blasted off into heaven. We're not helped by the art of the Christian faith, I don't think, because whenever this picture is, this scene is depicted in paint or stained glass, it always just looks like Jesus is floating away. And I just don't think that's what the Bible intends to convey, that Jesus blasted off. In other words, the ascension does not suggest that Jesus is above us, like Yuri Gagarin uh, asserted when he said, I've been to space, and Jesus is not here. Yuri Gagarin, of course, of course, the first astronaut. That's not what the ascension implies. Think of it. Would you ever say you ascended to a higher elevation? Would you ascend a mountain? Would you ascend a level of stairs? No, you'd climb stairs. You'd climb to a higher elevation. When would you ever use the word ascension? Well, you probably wouldn't because the only time you would use it is to ascend to a place of honor. Kings ascend to their throne, right? Kings don't climb to their throat. They are exalted to their place of honor. And so it is with Jesus. He not only has his earthly ministry come to a completion, but now he is in his rightful place of honor. His sin-bearing work is done. Uh, his resurrection has been accomplished. And now he is seated. He is by right, or he is by reality what he is by right. That is seated at God's right hand, at the place of honor. The head that once was crowned with thorns, is what we just sang. The head that once was crowned with thorns is now what? Crowned with glory. It's Jesus' exaltation. And so those are the two things. I'm going to make three points. Each of those three points are going to have two subpoints. It's kind of like a Puritan sermon. I only have three sermons, but one of those points is going to have 15 subpoints. So three points. Each of those three points is going to have two little subpoints. So what does the ascension do? Ascension stands for the completion of Jesus' ministry and his exaltation to his rightful place of honor. All right? So let's get to the fun stuff. What's that have to do with church and politics, religion and uh, church and state, religion and politics? Well, I think a lot. I want to look at the disciples' incorrect anticipation of what they think the results of Jesus' ascension will be. And I want us to look at Jesus' corrective response. Let me say that again. I want to look at the results of the disciples' 
that, that, that the disciples incorrectly anticipated as Jesus ascended into heaven, and I want to look at Jesus' correction of them. Make sense? So let's look. Jesus is ascending. He's been teaching them for 40 days. And the disciples, they gather around. They say, verse 6, Lord, now is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know that adage, adage, there's no such thing as a bad question? Incorrect. This is a bad question. John Calvin suggests that there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Because it is suggests that the implications behind this question suggest that the, Israel, the disciples, and think of it, the disciples are, have been with Jesus for 40 days, teaching, hearing straight from the Master. And yet still, the disciples, it is clear, they assume that uh, they, they have in mind a political and national aspirations. You see? Is, is now the time, Jesus, that you're going to restore the political fortune of our nation? Keep in mind, the nation of Israel was under the thumb of another nation, that being Rome. They'd been a subjugated people, and it had been for many years, aside from a brief stint with the Maccabees. So they've just, they've been beat up. And so the disciples are hoping, now that we've got someone up there who's on our side, is this going to be good for us? Answer. And can you imagine Jesus just, no, no, guys, I've been with you 40 days. The, the ascension of Jesus Christ does not stand for the restoration of a nation's political fortunes. Certainly not the nation of Israel. If you know your history, you know that their political fortunes following this event were not very good at all. And further, I would say that the ascension of Jesus Christ stands for the principle that uh, his ascension is not for the political fortunes of any nation. Ross Douthat writes in his, Ross Douthat, I don't know if you guys read him, he's a New York Times op-ed writer. He wrote a book called Bad Religion. He writes this. He says that the religious impulse is intertwined within our communal and national life, somewhere deep within our psyche. And religion has long found its most natural and potent expressions through the worship of a particular clan and later of a particular nation. See, you see that? There's a natural impulse to sort of wed these two together. And it's expressed perfectly by the disciples. Jesus, now that you're on our side, now that you're up there, it's going to go well for us, right? It's going to go well for our nation. It's going to go well for our people. It will go well for our party, political party. That is the disciples' mistaken anticipation of the result of the ascension. Do you see it? It's very common. We're not above it. We're not beyond it. So Jesus says, no, <laughs> that is not what will happen. I will not establish a I'm reading, I'm adding here, but his assertion is certainly not that he will restore a political nation. He will instead begin an international church. I recognize that the word church is nowhere in this passage, but I certainly think it's implied. You will be my witnesses. It's the witness, the Holy Spirit-powered witness of the disciples that will give birth to the church. And it is a church that will move past its geographical borders from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. No, Jesus is not going to restore the political fortunes of a nation. He will instead commence an international church. So let me summarize these points before we move on to some potential points of application. 
I think the first point I want us to observe is this very natural inclination to baptize our political aspirations, our political hopes, as expressed in the question of the first disciples. Jesus, now that you're in heaven, how's it going to go for us, our people, our clan, our party? And secondly, I want us to see Jesus' correction. No, not the restoration of political fortunes, but rather an international church. Let's think about some potential points of application. And the first one I've hinted at, we should be conscious of the misguided assumption of these first disciples. Jesus, since you're in heaven, are you going to help me out, help my people out? I just get uncomfortable when I hear statements like, this candidate is God's will for our nation. I get uncomfortable when a political party is too closely associated with an expression of Christian faith, as I think now is the case. I get uncomfortable with sort of really confident statements that ascertain or that suggest we know God's will is being acted out in the political arena. This is God's will for, I just don't know. In my opinion, there are only a handful of laws which I believe are outside God's will for this nation or for any nation, primary of which are those laws that allow for the taking of human life when human life is at its most vulnerable stages. I just do not see how that devaluation of the gift of life is in accordance with God's plan. But that notwithstanding, is it God's will that this person be elected, that this law be passed? I, I don't know. I'm not saying that we should not have an opinion. I'm not saying that we should not be informed. I'm not saying that we should not go to the Bible to guide our, uh, our political activity. I am saying that we should be very cautious to baptize our political hopes with words like God wills, God wants this or that to happen in this arena. Consider Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, the humility with which he writes, as he acknowledges the mysterious purposes of God. He addresses both the North and the South and says that both read the same Bible and both pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither answered, that of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Do you hear the note of humility? It's not the North is on God's side and therefore North one. No, the Almighty has his own purposes. So to our first point of application, we should be aware of the disciples' misstep, and we should be aware of Jesus' correction. His ascension did not mark the restoration of the political fortunes of a nation, not any nation. Rather, his ascension began an international church, and that is a, the second point of application. Since Jesus began an international church, I suggest one of the best points of application for you is to join the church. And by the way, joining the church just 
very well may be the most patriotic thing you could do. The best hope for this nation, the best hope for any nation, is a healthy, vibrant local church. You think that's an overstatement? The most patriotic thing you can do is to join the local church? Let me offer two evidences, pieces of evidence to the contrary, to argue that the best thing you can do, the most patriotic thing you can do, is be a part of a good, healthy local church. First, moral formation. This I'm drawing from author Jonathan Lehman, who wrote How the Nations Rage, summarizing some of his observations. People often extol the genius of the American founders and the wisdom of the Constitution, rightly so. America possesses the oldest written Constitution in the world, aside from one little small uh, example. Yes, he acknowledges that some of the founding fathers veered from traditional Christianity and rejected some of its beliefs. But the belief that all men were created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights was not a belief that sprung from the clear blue sky. Nearly every founder was weaned on the moral virtues of Christianity, even though they rejected some aspects of it. Some rejected some aspect of it. So, he concludes, it seems to me that we should give as much credit to the childhood pastors and to the Christian parents of American founders as to the men themselves. How about that? Where does the credit belong? Where did these men learn that each person is endowed with certain inalienable rights and that all men are created equal, even though the equality of all men was long in its realization? Where did they learn these things, if not from the churches that nurtured them, the parents that took them there, the Sunday school teachers that taught them? My children are in public schools to the subject of all men are in fact created, all men, women are in fact created equal. We... Uh, explored Black History Month in February. And of course, um, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and others were uh, researched and celebrated, and rightly so. As part of their studies, uh, children and my children and children of the public schools are asked a good question. That question is, well, how can you be like them? How can you take a stand for injustice, for inequality, wherever you see it? And that is a great question for any age. However, I think there's an even more foundational question. Before we ask how we can be like them, I think it probably is helpful to think how did they become like them? In other words, before we ask how did Martin Luther become, how can we be like Martin Luther King Jr., how about how did Martin Luther King Jr. become Martin Luther King Jr.? Where did he learn that hate will not drive out hate? No more than darkness will drive out darkness. From the church from the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, before we ask how we can be like him, it's helpful to know how he was like him. Where do you, where does anyone learn right from wrong, good and bad? Where are those beliefs reinforced and modeled across generations? Where can you see the very old, the very young, all adhering to the same basic moral universe, trying to play by the same values of right and wrong? A nation like ours, which is a nation for the people and by the people, depends to a great deal upon the moral formation of the people. And therefore, the most patriotic thing you can do is to be a part of your church. Second reason your local church is the best hope for this nation or any nation, not only morality but civility. I've cited this before. I think it's so insightful. Pardon the repetition if you've heard it. April 2017, the edition of The Atlantic 
Author Peter Beinart observes some of the unintended consequences of declining attendance in America. It's a well-known fact that people don't go to church, not as much as they did, and far in, in staggering numbers of, uh, of increasing numbers. The number of people who would claim no religious affiliation is something like 25 to 30 percent for a uh, millennial generation. Now, the speculation was a couple of years ago that if we could just get past some of these volatile culture wars, if we could just kind of put religion in the back, if we could become a little bit more secular, a little bit more tolerant, then we could put some of these divisive things behind us. The author, Peter Beinart, says, no, that was naive. As Americans haven't, as America's as Americans have left organized religion, they haven't stopped viewing politics as a struggle between us and them. We have simply come to define us and them in even more primal and more irreconcilable ways. Do you see his point? It's still us and them. It's just us and them in a more primal and irreconcilable way. Think of Dylan Roof. Think of Charlottesville. Notice the intentional lack of Christianity in the Black Lives Matter movement. And there is an intentional lack as compared to the more religiously inspired movement of King and Parks. The author concludes with a question. He doesn't know why. He says, maybe it's the values of hierarchy and authority and the tradition that the churches instill. Maybe religion builds habits and networks that help people better weather national traumas. For whatever reason, secularization is not easing political conflict, it's making it worse. So the most patriotic thing you can do for you, for your children, for your grandchildren, plug into a church, morality and civility. Let me summarize. On the day of ascension, two things happened. First, his earthly ministry came to a close. He did not appear on England's pleasant land. He didn't appear on this land. He didn't appear for any particular people and thereby say, these guys are my favorite. His earthly ministry has come to a conclusion. Secondly, his ascension marks his exaltation to his rightful place as the Lord of the universe and the Lord of his church, an international church. In this passage, we've seen a mistaken assumption of Jesus' ascension ascension. The assumption that because Jesus is in heaven, he is on our side, our clan, our people, our party. Therefore, we must be aware of this very human impulse expressed by the first disciples to enmesh to an unhealthy level religion and national life. I commend the humility and the acknowledgement of the mysterious providence of God as stated by Abraham Lincoln as a helpful model. Finally, we see Jesus' correction. His ascension does not mark the restoration of political fortunes of a nation, but the commencement of an international church. And because Jesus began an international church, you should be a part of it. And by the way, it's probably the most patriotic thing you can do for the simple points of moral formation and the civility that it engenders. Almost done. Church and state. Religion and politics, these are difficult subjects. Don't think that there was a time that was easier. There wasn't. It's always been a delicate tightrope to walk. It's an area in which people make mistakes. 
These first disciples made mistakes. You and I will make mistakes. But a difficult subject and past mistakes are no reason to not open our Bible, to ask for God's guidance so that we might think clearly and that we might live faithfully. Amen. I think our choir needs to come on up.